welcome to Proud to Be, the show that highlights veterans, military personnel, and family members published in Proud to Be, writing by American Warriors, a creative writing anthology that preserves and shares our nation's military experience through poetry, fiction, essays, interviews, and photography. I'm your host, Lisa Carrico, and our guest for this episode is Charity Winters. Charity is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and a freelance writer. During her six years on active duty as an Air Force Security Forces Officer, she has completed three tours in Iraq. Charity has been published in six of the nine volumes, and today we will hear some of her thoughts and stories behind a few of her PTB contributions. Charity, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today, Lisa. It's very um, exciting. I'm so happy to be a part of this. <laughs> well, we're excited that you're here, so thank you. So Charity, let's just start right off. Um, how did you come to be in the military? Um, it's kind of the family business in a way. It's kind of the, the profession that um, many of my family members are in. Both of my parents, mother and father, are both veterans. Um, they both have siblings, men and women, who served in uniform um, also. And then both of my grandfathers served. Um, my father's father was in World War II in the Pacific Theater. He was there for the liberation of Guam about that time. And then my mother's father served in the Air Force in the Korean and Vietnam Wars. So okay. definitely a kind of family business or profession that many of us get into. Do you feel like that's a natural calling? Do you feel that because you heard stories, what really kind of drew you then to military life? Um, in many ways, I, well, the military was the only town I ever knew growing up. Um, it was, uh, it is a complete culture. It is a, it is a it's an insulate, an insular culture, but I was raised primarily overseas. And I was raised primarily around military community and international community. I wasn't raised in the continental United States. I left when I was seven and I returned and I was 18 um, to go to school. And so this was the only town I knew, so to speak, even living overseas, the military, everyone, you know, you meet again. <laughs> and it is, uh, it is when we, in a time when we are really losing a sense of what is community, the military remains one from top to bottom, from start to finish. Um, you, it, you, you can join it, you can marry it, you can be buried, you can even be buried in it to some extent, right? Um, it, is a, it is a lifetime community, depending on how you wish to continue to participate in it. So it was not something that I was pressured to, into doing necessarily or even expected, but in a sense, it was the town I knew and that's the town I wanted to stay in is the best way to look at it. Um, it was an opportunity to get an education, training, uh, a means of starting off in, in the world. Um, it's public service. It has a lot of, you know, a lot of good things in it. But again, it was the community that I knew that pretty much was what led me to continue to want to be a part of it for as long as I was. Absolutely makes sense. Um, I like that, that idea that it is this community that you just wanted to continue to be a part of. So. Um, well, tell us a little bit about your service then. Okay. Um, I'm a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. Um, when I was at the Academy, 9-11 occurred while I was a cadet. We entered two wars at that time. Uh, when I graduated, we were still in them. They were, they were still at the beginning. Um, 
And when I graduated commission as what we call security forces officer, I became my service branches version of a military police officer. And I did that for six years. And while I was on active duty in six years, I deployed three times to Iraq, um, doing three, uh, three security-based missions, but three that were very different, actually, even in nature, um, and different in what we did, but different even in the time that I was there, because um, the tactical environment was ever-changing, it was dynamic. Um, what was happening in 05, 06, believe it or not, wasn't even really 06, 07 when I went back. It was just different missions. So while I was deployed my first tour, 05, 06, the Air Force was contributing. We were part of what we call the convoy security details. Security forces officers, Air Force truck drivers and mechanics, we were deployed with Army transportation units, what we call convoy units, um, these uh, ground transportation units that trucked every sort of logistical thing across the country, whether it be the mail, fuel, anything in between, right? That's, that's what they put in big line haul, the big trucks you see that go down the highway, honk, honk, honk. Yes, except they're up armored trucks, right? To protect them. And we provided the security for those details. Um, we would run, so our vehicles were also up armored. So we had up armored Humvees and up armored five tons, big trucks as well. And they usually had guns mounted on the top and turrets, heavy guns. And so that first mission was providing security for all of these convoys driving all over the country. Um, pretty, it was pretty exciting, adrenaline pumping work <laughs> to be a part of that. But um, that was my first one in 05, 06. I came home to the States and was moved to Guam, believe it or not, um, for my first assignment, I moved to Guam. And then as soon as I moved to Guam, I got another deployment order to be back in the country by, um, I think it was December of that year, actually. And I went back to Iraq in the winter fall of 2006, right? And then I did a law enforcement mission in the Southern, in Southern Iraq. Um, and that was different in that it was law enforcement, security law enforcement for a, a military base, an international base in Southern Iraq. Um, and then came home from that and I had about a year on Guam. And then by, I think it was 08, 09, I was deployed again, um, doing a different security mission again in Iraq. And when I came home for that, I promptly separated from the service and went to graduate school. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that I was- I feel like three quarters <laughs> you've paid your dues, right? So It, it was definitely an adventure, um, but I had, uh, by that time had formulated ideas on what I wanted to do professionally, ideas of what I wanted in terms of service that I wanted to continue. And, and I really wanted to pursue an education further. And so I, I did, I was fortunate that at that time the GI Bill had expanded um, to include service academy graduates. And so right when that happened, I was fortunate to be starting school and I went to graduate school. That's fantastic. But I think it's really interesting that you ended up uh, on Guam after your grandfather, you said. Uh, there, yeah, he was there in the Pacific Theater. I can even remember. Um, and he doesn't, you know, of course, what's interesting about that generation of veterans, I don't think they talked about it much when they came home. I don't think they talked about it much with their spouses. I'm not even sure if they talked much with their kids. But I think we're seeing that they might talk with their grandchildren about it. And um, grandpa, he's still with us. He's 94, still driving trucks, and he's learned to cook and clean the house because grandma says it's <laughs> uh, so, um, 
but yeah, he was in he was in Guam, and when I was there, this is you know we had flip phones, cellular service was a little bit different. But I used to I, when I would hike, I used to hike the jungles and hike the really tall hills and look out, and I would call him from a high location, and he'd ask me to describe what I was seeing <laughs> um, because he wanted to talk me through things and, and describe stuff. And um, yeah, I there was something about that coming full circle in a way that I don't think anybody could have imagined at the time because the liberation of Guam was a bloodbath. The, the, the liberation of the Mariana Islands during World War II was, was horrible, what happened, um, what was necessary, what was necessary to be done. But um, for him to be able to, for me to share pictures, photographs, of something else to show him what something became, right? To show his granddaughter, me, walking on a beachhead that once had been so saturated with blood, the sand was red, right? Oh, wow. Like, so, you know, that, and he was in the Navy, I don't, and he hasn't really talked much about, again, what he did at that time, but to be able to give him a picture of what something became. And I don't, you know, not many people get to see that in life. They don't get to see that maybe what they did, whatever little part it was they did, resulted in something good, that it grew into something, that it became something, that it mattered. So yeah, so that was really good that I got to, to go there and even do that for him. So. Uh, I think that's really, um, it's really connecting and powerful and maybe even without you knowing it, maybe even a little healing for him to, like you said, um, to be able to know what it was and to know what it is today and the experience that you're having with it. So thank you for sharing that connection. So Charity, how did you start writing about your military experience? Uh, was there a passion for writing before you entered the military or did you find a passion for writing because you started writing about your military experience? I always enjoyed writing, even as a kid. I enjoyed poetry, especially. Um, I'm a sucker for a good story. I love a good story. I love a good poem. I like to read. I like to be read too. So I think even as a kid, I saw what really talented people could do. And I'm not saying that I'm one of them, but I could see what they did. And I wanted to do it too. Like I wanted to be a part of that. And if I couldn't be a part of it, I wanted to be in the room at least, right? <laughs> So I always enjoyed it, but it wasn't until, and it was something I did, but never with any thought that it was going to be published or that there was some place for it to go. Um, but it wasn't until I was on active duty and it was after my first deployment that I met a Vietnam veteran, um, a career journalist by the name of Robert Timberg, uh, who's also a Naval Academy graduate, um, who read some, an essay, a short story that I wrote and loved it. And he got it into his head, God bless him, that I really needed to do more writing and I needed to write more. And not only that, like he, that this is something you could really do for a living, which, you know, at the time it was just kind of like, that's a bit of a stretch. Nobody, you know, first of all, no one pays poets anymore, but that he um, really thought that, but he not only did it, that he wanted to work with me to do it. And so he, he did, we started writing nonfiction, um, he started showing me things to read. He really just kind of stepped in. And I think that that is what happens to us, hopefully in life for many of us, is you find a mentor, someone that wants you to show you the way on something. 
whatever that the, the, the vocation is or the passion or the cause and they, they kind of light the way. They mentor you, they kick your butt a little bit, they work you hard, but if you can have someone like that in your life, that's, that's the best blessing ever. So I, I did, I've met uh, Robert Timberg and he got me started on that, even while I was on active duty. And then when I got out, kept going at it. Um, and I've been going since. I, I find it satisfying um, it, and, that's, and that's why I do it, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, you had mentioned after the three fours that you went off to school. So where did you end up going? Do you think Robert helped kind of influence where you went or? Well, he definitely, um, so he did, he influenced, uh, I wound up eventually after I had gone to school and got a clinical doctorate, um, for one profession. And then while I was doing that though, I he definitely, he had been beating the drum saying, you need to be studying the arts or other things. And so when I finished one degree, um, I actually then went and I, fortunately I was living in a place called Clarksville, Tennessee. I'd, start, I'd gone to graduate school in Nashville, my first kind of round of grad school, and then wound up in Clarksville, Tennessee. And they have a university there, Austin P State University with um, a really good literature program, graduate English literature program, and uh, had a, a writing concentration, but I was drawn to the school because of how intimate and small the grad program is. It was still face-to-face. -face. I mean, I was in classes with like five people. You can't hide. Wow. Right, right. You can't hide. You can't hide. You can't hide. <laughs> <laughs> and the teachers are there to teach. And so they're there to work you too. And so I had thought I needed more guidance um, and more direction as well. And because I always thought good writers should be good readers, I enrolled in the program. And um, it did challenge me academically and creatively. And while I was able to focus on reading great literature, I was able to actually work on craft and uh, work with a, good, a poet on staff. Um, I took all the writing courses they, they offered. I took more than just that. But it, I would say that was a, a formative and special time that I don't think many of us get to actually go off and study, explore, or do something that just brings you pure joy, right? Yeah. But I did at Austin P. It was, and it was that for me. And, it, and, and I would say that it's a gem. It's a gem of a program. That's fantastic. Looking through the Proud to Be series, your first publication with PTB started with volume two. Mm -hmm. um, how did you learn about Proud to Be and what compelled you to submit? So I learned about Proud to Be from another veteran. And what you're gonna find maybe even as we discuss the importance of veterans talking to veterans. Mm -hmm. Okay, but what we can do to help each other point us on a path and what that can lead to. Um, so yeah, I happened to be at the Austin Peay State University's Clarksville. So the Clarksville Writers Conference, which happens annually there. And it's hosted at Austin Peay, but it is the city's writing writer conference. Clarksville is, uh, home to some of the great Southern Gothic writers. Uh, Robert, Robert Penn Warren was born not too far from there. So it has a literary heritage. Um, and so it hosts a, writer, a writer's conference. And I met another veteran and poet, uh, Karen Schofield. Um, she, I believe she was from Vermont, but she happened to be at the conference and we just were talking and I had mentioned that, you know, I had short stories and poems, but wasn't quite sure how do we start getting these things out there 
And she said, well, have you ever heard of this proud to be book? And I went, nope, I haven't. And I probably, my guess is we talked a little bit and I went straight home and I, I looked you up because I went, wow, what is this thing that she's talking about? And I you know, wanna be a part of that if I can, because again, it's about, it was about veterans writing in the arts, getting out there, getting published and being a part of the arts community. And I was like, yeah, I wanna be a part of that. Looked you up and saw, yes, it takes short fiction stories. And I had one ready to go. That was about, it was total, it was complete fiction about a woman, a World War II veteran nurse and her family of veterans. And that story I wanted to get out. And that is the story that Proud to Pee published. And so just very, yeah, it worked out. It was the right platform. Um, and then I just continue to want to be a part of it. Um, I got to, I remember because part of the launch is um, they have a launch a launch event in St. Louis. And so the authors are invited to St. Louis. If you, if they, many live there, but some of us have to drive a bit of ways or fly in, but you're invited to present your work, meet with other veterans, and again, be a part of the conversation, the community of writers. And absolutely, that's, again, I want to be in the room, <laughs> right? Before, like the talent's up there. I just like to be in the room with them and listen to good stories, right? So um that was, that's part of it. So I started to even go to those launch events when we could go, um, right? And anytime I was invited, I did go. Even when I moved from Tennessee to another state, I flew in and did it. It mattered that much to me to be a part of Proud to Be and still be a part of it, so. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so many thoughts running through my head at the moment, but I'm gonna have to track down this Karen Schofield and thank her uh, for, <laughs> this recommendation and just wondering if she's maybe connected um, to a former editor, uh, Susan Swartwout, um, but Simo Press um, is who publishes the book. Uh, so for our listeners, a little background, uh, Missouri Humanities published Proud to Be in partnership with Southeast Missouri State University's Press. And we're so fortunate that they've committed for 10 years now to review submissions, edit format, and publish the volume. So we're extremely grateful for that sustained collaboration and the two editors that we have worked with, both Susan and now James Brubaker. So, and as far as the readings go, you know, I've had the honor to meet you at a couple of our readings uh, that we've put on in partnership with CMO Press. And it's always been a delight to, to talk with you. So thank you for journeying, you know, into Missouri to, to read your work. And not only are you a part of that room, but you are a reader, you are the room. So thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, we have to also in that, um, I think, and I want to say that possibly Karen Schofield may have appeared in the very first edition. And I, I do know that she knew Susan Schwarthart, uh, the first editor. I think that was the connection. Um, but I really got to give a shout out to Simu Press. Um, they would impress me and still impress me about the collaboration with the Missouri Humanities Council, the press and the university is at a time when newspapers are folding, when printed journals are, are, are closing, being forced online. As I put it, like the physical printed word seems to almost be on, on to some extent an assault, like people, it, it's, it's, it's fighting that this press had the cojones to go, we're going to start a new journal in the middle of <laughs> We're going to start a new book and we're going to print it. And then we're going to print it. We're going to sell it on Amazon. Okay. <laughs> and we're going to do it with veterans. Um, that 
takes a sense of profound optimism inside an institution and the people working on it to want to do that with the arts. And I, how could you not, like a person who cares about the arts such as I do, why, how could I not want to be a part of that and experience that optimism? Again, to stand up and do something when everything, like I said, in the industry is going another way. To stand up and go, no, we're going to start publishing books. That's absolutely, want to be a part of that and want to encourage whoever's in charge, the people doing the work, to encourage them in that work. Um, it's, they've found maybe a niche, but also a way again to work in the arts, promote the arts, promote creativity and, and publish the work um, and keep it sustainable. That's commendable. It's, I'm grateful, so. Well, on behalf of the Missouri Humanities, um, I know that this platform, um, the, these books, these volumes, um, a place where veterans and their family members can share their stories and whether that is in poetry or short, short story form, fiction, short story, um, we're gonna keep pushing on as long as we can. We, we see the value in this. And again, we're just thankful that SEMO uh, Press also sees this value and are publishing these books for us and doing all the hard labor over there to put them together, so. Charity, you've been published in six of the nine PTV books uh, with a total of nine contributions. Of these nine pieces, your submissions include one fiction short story, two pieces of nonfiction, and six poems. Uh, I thought let's, let's explore uh, one of your poems in volume five called Kaboom. Uh, would you mind reading the poem and telling us about why you wrote this piece? Absolutely. The title is Kaboom. Palawada is a 15 minute trip in an armored truck with machine guns mounted. It should have been a quick turn and burn, but the lead truck takes a right when it should have been a left onto a street where children without shoes play soccer with garbage balls and throw rocks at gunners and turrets and are choked by the dust kicked up by the vehicles speeding by. Fab Palawada, named after a West Pointer killed early in the war with a tank for a gate and guys in sandbag tents waiting for the mail to come in a truck, met by explosions then on a dead end road. Contact left, contact right. Where the hell is Palawada? It should have been 15 minutes, but gun truck three is on fire and screams from inside are silenced as ammunition cook off and perforates flesh and armor. Who is the closest? Palawada. The UAV caught it on camera. Someone in another desert eating takeout from a Mexican drive-through watches live as men are pulled from vehicles and their brains blown into the street. What happens in life when left is right? Um, I wrote that piece um, 
it is a it is of memories of not someone of me. I was not there when something like this happened, but it is something an event that happened when I was deployed running gun trucks on gun convoy security, um, a convoy that had taken a wrong turn in a very tightly dense area, and they were also quite close to the base, our home base. They were so close, it was it's like a fifteen minute trip. Uh, the distance that they were going, you know, is less than what most people commute every day to work. But in this situation, there was a directional confusion, um, possibly even directional confusion based on whether someone said Roger or the word right. The military is full of lingo and phrases and words and abbreviations and communication is key. But this convoy took a wrong turn and got caught in a dead end and they knew they were caught whatever happened they, they couldn't get out and they couldn't u-turn and um they have these things called unmanned aerial vehicles uavs and someone it was all obviously caught at a distance by someone who's not even it was caught on camera caught on video by someone who wasn't even there right it wasn't even a part of it but somehow is equally now a part of the trauma they're a data collector. They're a witness to something, but they're physically not even there. So it's, uh, that was one poem I wrote about something like the convoys. I, and I have written others that were not published by proud to be that expand more on military communication and words and lingo and how quickly, if you don't know the language, things get confusing. What happens is right, Roger. So um, what happens, yeah, when someone says turn left or turn right, right, right? I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, the, um, the idea of also understanding the poem that close is not safe and far is not safe. What is, what is distance? What is yeah. close? What is being apart and being separate? Yeah, as somebody that hasn't served and, and reading this poem, uh, it's so gripping. Um, you know, it demonstrates the hard truths of war, some of the confusion of war, and especially as you said, when there's miscommunications, that brings even more confusion. Um, and maybe even the strangeness of watching war from afar. Uh, whether it's you as a part of your job watching this to collect data or somebody watching this on the news. Um, you know, here's somebody from afar, uh, just like in this poem where they're seeing something horrific happening in one part of the world while being looked upon by a bystander um, halfway around, you know, the world and an observer just doing their everyday thing. Uh, again, whether it's somebody collecting data or somebody seeing this on a news while, um, you know, passively washing their dishes. Um, but it's an odd feeling of like connection, but yet disconnection. Yeah. And cognitive dissonance almost that can happen because it is our, who is present, who isn't present, who is culpable, who is a part of it. Um, and even in the question, like to those that it happened to, um, the confusion of it. Um, I actually was on after, let's say this, an event like this had happened um, when they sent another team in to do the run, this particular route, it was 
my team that was sent immediately after this event. So then I actually got to see the, the, the route myself, experience how long it should have taken. The turn, like, and uh, and also that we went on this. This it was a short convoy. When I say it was short, it was you always loaded up a convoy as if you might not, you might be gone all night and into the next day, even 15 minutes, because you might be gone all night and into the next day, right? You better always have your night vision goggles, even in broad daylight, right? Um, but when we went, I mean, we had a helicopter escort. We had so much increased security to get 15 minutes because of an unfortunate thing that had happened. Um, and it, but to have seen it myself, to get a sense of that short distance, right? Um, and then even later, I, I was in a convoy that was ambushed and it was so close to home. It wasn't far away. It was very close to where we were supposed to be getting. So how close is close and how far away is help? I can tell you help is far away when it's not there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? Right? Help is far away if it's not there. Yeah. When it's, there, it's close, but when it's not there yet, it's pretty far away. Just to think about how many people were affected by 15 minutes. Um, you know, you said there were children potentially playing in the street. So they see a bombing, the folks that were in the attack, their families, their friends, uh, everybody that was brought in after the fact, um, how it affected you to see it, and then also to later be in your own situation similar to this. And then also, you know, everybody that is observing this and, you know, from the data collector to whether or not this made a news report. Um, it's pretty, right. it's pretty crazy to think about how many people that potentially some form of trauma could have been passed down to because of these 15 minutes of a, a wrong turn, right? A wrong turn, effectively. I mean, even, and if we're just going to look at it as I think, and with Proud to Be, we are, you know, you are focused on the veteran experience of the veteran family, the military experience is part of the mission of Proud to Be. But to understand like that, that, that war is an, every, well, it's happening somewhere all the time, right? But I, I, I always look to, we'll look at everybody else the kids in the street, whose town it is. It's someone's hometown you're in, okay. It's someone's mother. It's these, it, there is the stories. I mean, you have war stories, and you have stories that happen in war. Not sometimes what is the difference between the two, but all those lives intersecting. Um, and lives like that's their hometown. That's the norm. They're, they're what happens in their town, kids playing soccer with, they make they take garbage and they make these balls and like tape it up and you know make a soccer ball so they could kick it around right um we we do have a tendency to think of and we we're focusing on the combatants the people in the military or the people in uniform because there's non-combatants in uniform too but in iraq it was it was so intimate that what i did and intimate and that we saw and interacted you know you have to interact with people it's not far away from me I wasn't seeing it on a screen, right? Mm -hmm. I was there. We were in, you know, it, and people are a part of that. Um, and I think any moment you, you try to start to disassociate that from the reality of what you're doing, it's unwise. <laughs> you have to remember, I mean, you have to remember at the end of the day, it is people that are doing this and it's people that are affected, right? Yeah.
So writing a piece like um, Kaboom, does that, like when you write a story like that down, that's really deeply personal, um, does that help? What does that do for you? I mean, um, I guess I, I think, I mean, writing can be therapeutic, but I never used it. I never use it as therapy for myself. Um, it can be therapeutic. Again, I, um, I wanted, I have wanted to, especially with the, the medium of poetry to see if I can tell story. And so that, that's the challenge for me. So if I had a story that, that materialized in verse or in a form, could I do it and, and achieve it? And, um, as I put it on, get to the point um, of the story. That, if that's satisfying. Um, and, but I think what Kaboom does for me is it does me, it, it allows me to be reflective. Um, it allows, and I hope that if anybody was to read these things to be, to be thoughtful, like that's it. Um, I don't know if we really should use art to teach lessons. You know, um, but <laughs> to encourage dialogue and thought, meaningful dialogue, yeah. But to you know, to teach a lesson, hmm, that gets a little, that gets a, it gets a little preachy, gets a little high tower, right? But to participate in the art form and see if again someone reading it can appreciate it and go, that works. And if even in doing so, it leads to conversation, even better. Um, well, personally, I feel like you executed what you <laughs> wanted to do with that poem. And as somebody that has read it, um, I, I feel like it did make me ask a bunch of questions. And really, I took some time to think about what that experience would be like if I were to witness that and any of the different stages that we kind of talked about. So um that's my thoughts on that <laughs> good very good I am um, yeah it, part of why like okay, I think even why I write about the military experience not that there isn't other things and even since recently I and I mean I have written non-military work but um for whatever reason as a whole hasn't some has seen publication and some has not been picked up um but one reason why I continue to write about it is I think it goes back to the idea that this is my hometown in many ways. This is the people that, that raised me, the people I know. This is the community I know, the culture that I know. And it's a culture that's in the minority, right? So in the American population right now, so if in America, less than 3% of the population, I think it's less than 22 million Americans have served in uniform, period. Not actively serving, but less than 22 million, um, less than 3% of the population. And of that, yeah, less than 1% are women, right? Um, that's, I think that's right. Yeah, so I'm looking at, yeah, uh, no more than 2 million, just about over 2 million are women. Um, we are a minority. Okay, we're a minority that crosses all socioeconomic boundaries, professions, uh, it, it, crosses a huge part. We, are, we have members of such a huge part of American history that are in this community. And yet as a minority, um, we, are high, we are also underrepresented, unrepresented in government, the highest levels of government and continue to, and that numbers, the numbers continue to decrease. I think that's saying something about representation, but also how 
the profession is viewed as a life, as a culture, and what it means to have served, and then what does it mean in terms of the future for public service? Um, and who is asked or compelled to serve? And what is the motivation of that? And where are these Americans coming from that choose to go into uniform? So another reason to write and be a part of this is to tell the story because there's fewer and fewer people who can do so. I mean, it isn't that you can't write good fiction and not have been a veteran. You can't not be a veteran and write the story, but there's fewer and fewer veterans that can tell their story. Yeah, I think um, something I always like to talk about with Proud to Be, it's, it's a source, it's, it's a place where those who have served can connect through these stories. Um, but I also feel like it's a good guidebook for civilians who haven't served in, in a life now that it's an all voluntary um, service. You, you volunteer to be in the military. Um, and because there is the small percentage that are serving and they're serving multiple tours, just like you did, if there isn't people telling the story of what's happening, I do feel like there's a big disconnect there, right? Um, I do. I, I do think there's a big disconnect and it isn't to, I, I, I don't even want to say that it, it's a glorification of war or a glorification, a, a, an idolatry of military service. In other words, putting it on a pedestal, making it, you know, icon out of it. Um, that's not what I'm saying that I, I'm advocating for, but I am saying that because fewer and fewer Americans and fewer Americans are doing so, then there's, there is a, a gross misunderstanding. And then especially when we're dealing with the people who lead our country and government who are deciding what to do with the men and women in the armed services. And, and I'm not saying that service makes you better at leadership. I'm not saying it makes you honest or more honorable. I'm not saying that at all. I do, there is some, you're not even saying that having had skin in the game is going to make you more effective at those jobs. But I'd like to think that it might make you be more accountable in the beating of drums. Yeah, empathy maybe is a word that's coming to my mind. Sorry. Empathy, empathy and understanding. Empathy and understanding, but also a sense of responsibility and accountability with the lives that you command. Yeah, absolutely. Right, um, a sense of that but with fewer and fewer people that have a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, a mom or a dad that have served, there is, you know, this is true, a lot of skin in the game. Um, you know, when I went to grad school the first time, none of my professors the school had gone to and none of my fellow students had ever served. Um, it was the, for me, a culture shock having grown up in a world where you bounced around Again, because of how the, the, the community I was raised in, uh, I didn't, I hadn't realized that my majority had been a minority. It was a rude, it was a very rude awakening. I mean, it was necessary. I'm not saying it was bad for me, but it was. My majority had been a minority and it was becoming even more so. Um, and and I, I don't think that is to our betterment as a nation that wants to be a, a, a thoughtful democracy, democracy of citizens, right? Uh, to have engaged citizens. Um, we need to have more dialogue and understanding of military service. 
And it matters because it is our country's economy, our country's future. I mean, I think the wealth of our nation is our young people. And what we choose then to do with our young people says a lot about we think how we want to use the wealth of our nation, right? Absolutely. Let's visit one of your one of your poems. Let's do okay. another one. Coming Up Americans uh, is featured in volume four. Uh, would you mind reading that poem for us? Coming Up Americans. They wanted men to match their mountains and men to match their planes. Men with empires in their purpose, another era in their brains. Men to take the hill and men to march the ramp. Men to sing the Jody call and men to lead the dance. Men to die in glory as only seen on silver screens and men to leave the widows looking so serene. But do not pretend that there are only merry men in the banded merry few who have gone into the breach and paid the nation's dues. There are others, sisters, daughters, mothers, who have an equal take in all good decisions and too often all mistakes. Yes, bring me fighters who will stand to face the storm and blast, branching always upward, rooted in the ever-present past. Bring me those to lead in failure and to lead despite fatigue, to be the fallen birds and stars, if that's what duty means. Bring me men to go in peace and men to go in war and unleash the women too for all that we are fighting for. Thank you, Charity. Um... I absolutely love how that ends. Um, I've always been drawn to this poem of yours. Um, would you mind telling the audience the story behind this poem and what it means to you? Sure, um, I can do that. So the poem is a play, a play or my, the poem is my response to a poem I had to memorize when I was a cadet and be quite familiar with when I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy. The poem that we had to learn or we knew is called The Coming American by Sam Walter Foss. It's a 19th century poem, um, an example or harkens us to a, a time of American exceptionalism. It's, um, it, is a it is a poem that looks to the beauty of America, the environment, the freedom, the space, the scope, um, and the expansiveness of America. It's a poem that kind of harkens us to excellence, but it is a 19th century poem written by a man who, um, to the best of my knowledge, never served in the military. And it is not a poem in and of itself about war or a poem occurring in war, <laughs> um, but it is a poem that uh, resonated apparently with the founders of the Air Force Academy. So much so that the Air Force was founded in 1947, to give you some timeline. And the first class the Air Force Academy graduated in 1959. I hope I'm right on that. I, I should, I'm a grad. But um, <laughs> you're not getting graded during this podcast. The grads call me up and go, well, Charity, you totally biffed. <laughs> I'll take it. But um, the point is that this poem by Sam Walter Foss, who was an American poet, East Coast, um, and wrote, was a prolific writer. I mean, um, resonated with the founders so much so that they uh, fixed the poem to the entrance of the academy 
And then they took a repeating phrase that occurs in the poem called Bring Me Men. Um, the poem even starts like the first verse of, of Foss's poem goes, bring me men to match my mountains, bring me men to match my plains, men with empires in their purpose and new eras in their brains. And it's a 36 line poem. And in that poem, um, the phrase bring me men is repeated um, nine times. And I think the word um, man appears uh, almost just twice as much in those 36 verses. But anyway, it, this really resonated with the founders of my school. So much, like I said, they stuck it to the entrance of the, of the, the academy. And then if that wasn't enough, they put these big words in metal above the entrance of the academy, bring me men in big bold letters. <laughs> and um, it was called, when I was even there, this entrance was called the bring me men ramp. It's where you entered and exit, came in and out of school uh, on foot. Um, and it was there when women were admitted to the academy in 1976. And it was there when I entered. And it is not there anymore. It was eventually taken down in 2003, it did come down. Um, but when I was there, it obviously something about that stuck with me because by the time uh, I finished my service and was writing some poems, I decided to write my response to Sam Walter Foss. And it isn't that Foss's poem in and of itself is even bad, it's an excellent poem. It, I just don't really know what it had to do with the Air Force or the Academy and even its purpose over the years to remain there, um, especially since it became a mantra. It was required memorization. That this was something we had to know. It was so important at the Academy in terms of things that you're familiar with or you knew is that we had a, a cadet book, like a, a guidebook, you know, this cadet book, right? Full of all sorts of knowledge here, your constitutions in here, the Star Spangled Banner, uh, hold all the aircraft inventory. But in between the Constitution and the Oath of Allegiance of the United States and the Star Spangled Banner, I kid you not, is The Coming American by Sam Walton. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's at the beginning right, of this book. And it's a mantra, but uh, words have meaning. Words shape thoughts, thoughts shape words, and our thoughts shape our action, and our actions shape character. They shape worldviews. Um, and my response to that was, as, I mean, even was when I was there, I don't know really even what I, I thought about it other than I just thought it was rather goofy, I think. Like it just, it, it, it doesn't, it was not mankind. It was definitely men and repeat the word men and bring me men and I got it, you know. It's like you march into school with this thought, well, patriarchy isn't gonna fight itself now, is it? So, <laughs> but that's not even it to not to be, I mean, to make a joke, it's that, that words matter and our, our creeds and the things that we say to ourselves matter. And at a school like the Air Force Academy, which is a professional school to train professional military officers, you're graduating members of the profession of arms. This is very specific training with a very specific in state that we want. Um, our creeds matter because it is shaping the worldview and the perspective of the graduates. And so, when I finally myself had gone off and gone to war, I still remember thinking about that sign 
and that poem. And what and remembering when it finally came down um, in all the angst and the gnashing of teeth and emotion that was surrounded by taking down something that they saw as a part of their school's history, uh, founda foundationally so. Um, but even again, the, the anger and the emotion wrapped around it. They had to ask, what, what is it that this, why are these words so important that you would want to keep them there? What are they informing? And how are they shaping and molding, again, the Air Force officers you wish to graduate? Um, and so that's why I wrote the poem, because I'm not a man. <laughs> I'm not. I mean, I, and uh, women have served in uniform before the foundation of my school. Um, they've served in many capacities, but not only that, but I think it was even a question of, of expanding it to understanding that war is not a masculine experience. I really like that, that it's not just a masculine experience. It is. Especially after we just talked about kind of the numbers that are serving and increasing, you know, women currently make up 15% of active duty personnel in the military overall. So it is not just a few, however you identify, but it is not a masculine experience. It's not. And not only that, but in terms of just, it is, it is very much a part of, and some people may disagree with me when I say it's very much a human experience, a part of human history. Human history is shaped by it. War resonates throughout it. Um, for better or worse, whatever it does and causes, it is something that we do. But it involves everyone. Um, it, is, it, 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 it involves every individual. And it's not simply because it's someplace far away from you, but even throughout history, it's it has had a way of being a total experience and women are very much a part of that and have been never not children mm -hmm. families, right what's at stake here in the war your home is at stake and who's at home your families right mm -hmm. so that to me was my answer to uh, a piece of words, some words that, 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 that shaped, I think, attitudes at my school. I think many, I think that those words did shape and were formative in worldview uh, and that they did need to come down. Yeah, I mean, the poem, um, that experience seems very deeply personal to you and um, seems to be a shared experience among other women cadets. Um, who had a similar reaction to the to those words entering a, a building. Um, something that I love about Proud to Be is that it gives female veteran writers a place to share their narratives. And we kind of touched a little bit about this, but um, as a woman, as a woman writer with combat experience, why are women's voices essential in military writing and in telling wartime stories? Well, they're essential because women are in war. I mean, they, they, whether they are as combatants or they are, it is occurring around them, um, women are and have been in war. Fighting, if it needs to be physically, you know, war is violence, right? So people have a stake in either not wanting to be the victims of it, wanting to prevent it, but 
um, women are very much a part of that and in it. And if you go into any scenario and not think that in the population, the civil interaction with a nation or a people with whom you may be in conflict doesn't involve the women of that community, then you're, you're making a gross miscalculation. Um, and everything from how it is conducted tactically to how you want things resolved. But if you just go in and you decide to check out 50% of the population of the world and not think that they have a stake in what's going on, yeah, there's a gross miscalculation in the and how it will be executed and the outcomes. Um, and not only in terms of saying the women in uniform, but again, even the non-combatants, right? Uh, and so yes, that's why our voices are important because we're in it and we've always been. Um, whether we're, we're talking about ancient war epics of Homer where you have women's voices, even though Homer's writing it, but women are characters in his work and they're active participants in things that are happening, correct? Um, to in the ancient Hebrew text, Moses' sister writes a poem about war and the victory in battle. Women's voices have mattered even in war writing and war storytelling since the beginning. So they matter now. Um, you know, even Chaucer, uh, so if we even look at the, the Western canon, if you can call it that, the, the English, how about the English speaking canon? Um, Chaucer, um, he himself had served in wartime. History shows he was po very possibly a POW. Um, and then Chaucer would go on to write the Canterbury Tales. And in the Canterbury Tales, he has veterans that are going on the pilgrimage, but these veterans also tell stories. And the knight's tale, which is quite a long part of the book, the knight then tells a story, a, a war story, a story of combatants and people, um, but there are equal men and women who are, are combatants in this. And POW is also in the story. So women are in these stories and they're telling these stories and they're shaping these stories. They aren't bystanders because this isn't a masculine experience. It's a human one. And anytime you ask, well, what and where should a, a woman be? I have to ask, well, where, what should a human be doing and be a part of, right? I mean, are women human? Yes. And so they're going to want to do and be a part of everything that that involved, that being that is involved, right? Um, so, yeah. And then we see that even in more recent times in terms of women's voices in the creative world, I mean, I think you, even after World War II, you know, Julia Child, who had been in the OSS, um, she used the GI Bill to go to school, or to not to go to school, but to be trained to be a chef, right? You see what, how individuals have taken the opportunity or the challenges of their lives and they've turned it into something to the good of themselves, but to others, right? So yes, women's voices matter because they're there. We could probably just like talk for hours more about literature and women writing about their wartime experience. Um, but let's kind of take it to a more broad sense uh, of the arts. Um, I feel there's a great need and desire to help improve the health, wellness, and quality of life for military and veteran populations exposed to trauma, as well as their family and caregivers um, through the use of creative art. So how do you view the collaboration of veterans and the arts? I think that uh, military conflict has informed many artists. I think you already mentioned kind of like uh, Chaucer, but even you know Hemingway uh, took a lot of material from the wartime experiences. We have sculptors that were, were military veterans. Um, I was thinking of Sam Maloof who made furniture after World War II. Uh, you, 
you have this this very interesting believe it or not what i find is a shared values between the artistic community and veterans and that um they both as a community as culture value formative processes generative process they value that they value precision and habit and practice they value equally technical competency and not just competency but excellence and technical skills okay and i think any way that we can encourage collaboration between those two communities is going to be mutual beneficial but even especially beneficial for the arts because you have to work hard <laughs> in the arts and you have to work hard with very little necessary even appreciation or recognition forever maybe I can say that vets as a whole, as a community of people, they work really hard. <laughs> they have overcome, overcome so many challenges. It's ingrained in them. Their training as a whole has taught them how to work hard, be problem solvers, look as cha at challenges as opportunities instead of obstacles, right? So any way that we can encourage the veterans and the arts to collaborate, I think we're going to see the benefit of the arts to encourage veterans to be a part of the creative process. That's to encourage their humanness. And that's, I mean, we want to encourage that in everyone. We want everyone to find that in themselves and experience what it is like to be creative every day, to feel the joy of creation, the frustration, the struggle of it. But definitely if we're talking about the arts community that needs hard workers, trailblazers, people to just push it forward. Yeah, go get veterans. <laughs> Put them like this. Go get veterans. Put them in your theater programs. Make them learn <laughs> craft. Make them learn lighting. Put them in your sculpture course. I give show them that wait a minute, what they what they didn't realize in their pursuit of a, you know, so much of this pursuit of education is degree based. You must have this degree to get this technical job. It's not that those are wrong, but to go, no, I want you to take some art courses, man. <laughs> Let's go make something, take some woodworking, <laughs> do some sculpting, get your hands messy, dirty, frustrated, but envision something and make it real. Because that builds communities, that builds people up. And so, yeah, my answer to that is the more we can get veterans and the arts community to collaborate, it's going to be better for the arts. <laughs> so. I love it. I love it. Um, I feel like you need to be out there advocating for this uh, more. So your new your new service on the side is to be advocating for uh, military personnel in the arts. Um, so I have one last question for mm -hmm. you. Um, what do you hope that others gain from reading your proud to be contributions and military related writings? Um, I hope that I succeed at telling a good story. Good meaning that it's a complete story. It may be a sad story. It may be a funny story, but I hope that I succeed in, in the storytelling and in the form that I can deliver it. And that I hope that others enjoy it, but that they want to share that experience with someone else. There's something that I've read and they've gone, hey, mom, take a look at this. I want to read this out loud to you. Or so-and-so, I want to read this out loud. Or even, hey, I don't buy this at all. She's wrong and I'm going to tell her. Great. <laughs> Why? Because it engaged you. Please, if you want to tell me how this is so wrong, you don't agree with their, the form here was wrong, the rhythm, the meter, go ahead. Because that actually means I got your attention. 
And that's what I want to do. Engage people. Let's engage. Let's get engaged. And if it means that you call me up and want to, again, tell me how wrong this is and how you'd fix that or you disagree with me on a whatever it may be, yay. It got your attention. Thoughtful conversation and dialogue, right? That's what you're looking for. Thoughtful conversation, dialogue. I, I mean, even vigorous discussions, okay. <laughs> <laughs> vigorous discussions, you know, we, but to come back and go, but we can have these vigorous discussions because we care about the arts. And we want it to be better. We want it to continue. We don't want journals closing down print to go away, right? So we can have these vigorous discussions because we loop around that we actually find that we care about the same things. We just may come at it from different perspectives, right? That's the other value of this. You may never have served in the military. That's great. I mean, it's, it doesn't, that's, I'm not saying that everyone has to. I'm saying that by reading this, if it engages you so that you want to talk about it and to consider anything about the experience, the story, public policy, how things are being done, that shapes other aspects of your civic life even. Great, but at the, at the heart of it, if it just engages you and we want to go at it about art and, and promoting art, and creative, the creative world, then yay. That's what I hope. That's what I really hope. And yeah, even vigorous discussions. <laughs> well, we're going to end it with that. Um, Charity, thank you for your time. Um, you know, I always have such a great time talking to you. Uh, and I especially enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for sharing your creativity, your stories, and the passion that came through in this interview today. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's been, this is, this was a real treat and thank you for thinking of me and continuing to let me be a part of the proud to be um, publication. It just, it, it truly matters and keep working at it. What you do and what your organization does matters. Thank you for that. And we look forward to more submissions from you. If you would like to read Charity's PTV pieces, you can purchase Proud to Be Volumes 1 through 9 at mohumanities.org backslash veterans. This podcast is brought to you by the Missouri Humanities. I'm Lisa Carrico, and we hope you will tune in for future episodes of Proud to Be as we interview PTV contributors to discover the stories behind their PTV contributions. Mm -hmm.